We're beginning a new series today, and I want to invite you to grab that message outline in front of you there, and hopefully you've got a Bible or maybe your Android or your, your um, iPhone or your, your iPad device, and that can be uh, how you're studying the Scripture with us today. We're beginning a new series, and it's called, Is There Hope for America? And we're going to talk about the issues that are, that are facing our country. We're going to be talking uh, with uh, the Bible in one hand and kind of the newspaper in another one. And we're going to be talking together about the country that we're a part of and what's happening across the face of, of our landscape together. Now, before I dive into that, let me just tell you a little bit about why I feel led to start this series. I was talking with a grandmother in our church. Now, that's kind of funny to say that because the older I get, the younger grandmothers get. I don't, is anybody with me? Um, I mean, this was, I'm talking about, you know, one of these friends of mine, and she's a grandma, and she came to me, and we were sitting in my office, and we're just talking about life together, and she said something I thought was very important. She said, you know, it was right after the Supreme Court had made their announcement that, you know, marriage was going to be redefined and all that kind of stuff, and she looked at me, and she said, let me just tell you, one of my grandchildren, who is a middle schooler right now, one of my grandchildren looked at me and said, Nana, tell me what's going on. Explain this to me. And she, and she explained another deal that was going on in their family with a person who was living a wayward lifestyle and far away. And, and, and that, that child said, explain this to me, Nana. And she looked at me uh, there sitting in my office and she said, you know, I didn't know how to even answer. I didn't know how to answer for our country. I didn't know how to answer for our family. I didn't have the words to say. And then she looked at me and she said, Pastor Stephen, I really wish you'd do a series about America, and I wish that you'd help us understand what's happening in our country right now, and here was her words, and equip us with the ability to talk to our coworkers and to talk to our children about the things that are happening in America right now. Well, that's quite the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> that's quite the challenge. And so um, I have been very prayerful for weeks about bringing to you a series of messages where we talk about a lot of stuff. And if that's okay, we're just going to talk about a lot of stuff. I'm not going to try to put it all in one week. We're going to spread it across six weeks, and we're going to talk about a lot of the different issues that are facing us. We're going to talk about issues that, that might be, seem more cut and dry to you, and then some that might be a little bit more gray to you. We're going to talk about politics and politicians. We're going to talk about immigration, and we're going to talk about national debt, and we're going to talk about issues of Supreme Court justices or activist judges. We're going to talk about um, issues that are facing our country with race and uh, racial divide and hatred and guns and violence. We're going to talk about all that stuff together, but we're going to do it across six weeks, okay? And each week, I'm going to just talk about a few things as we... Again, hold the newspaper in one hand, hold the Bible in another, and try to make sense of something that some, some, of, some of the stuff happening in our nation. So here's, here's the big goal that I have for this series. It's kind of a three-fold goal. Track with me here, if you will. I'm going to be addressing some issues that are facing our country, and I'm going to be sharing some scriptures with you that I think can speak to those issues facing our com- country, number one. The second thing we're going to be doing is I hope to be able to equip you, at least challenge you, to think about some of the issues that are facing our country and maybe even thump your thinking a little bit because I think sometimes that needs to happen for us. Maybe we think the way that our homes raised us to think, but we really haven't thought in relation with the Scripture and thought about what do we really think our country needs to be, the direction our country needs to be headed. So I hope to equip you with some thoughts and challenge some thinking with you. And then the third thing I'm going to challenge you to do is I'm going to challenge you to pray for our country. 
at the close of every one of our services together, we're going to open up our altar and we're going to come and pray for our country because our country needs prayer. Our globe needs prayer. And Christ followers like you and me, we need to bow a bend a knee. And we need to hold our country up before the Lord. Yes, in our own private prayer closets. But yes, corporately together, we need to be praying for our country. And so I'll direct you towards, at the end of every worship service, kind of a a different way to be praying for our country. But uh, that's kind of the journey we're going to be on together. And I want you to begin with me, if you will, in just kind of a spirit of prayer before we ever study God's Scripture this morning, that we would pray for God's Scripture to speak to our lives. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe it is truth. We believe it is active. It's not some old document that doesn't speak to us today. We believe it will penetrate past bone and marrow straight to our spirits and our souls. So let's be open to that today, all right? Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together? God, we thank you for this moment that we have, just to kind of hit the pause button on life, to do again what Christ followers have done so many times, just to collectively turn to your scriptures And Lord, I pray for us today that it would be something akin to disciples sitting on the seashore of Galilee or or, uh, of the Sea of Galilee or or disciples um, sitting on the temple steps and just hearing you and wondering and, and learning from you and not thinking we have it all figured out, but Lord, just trying to get a glimpse of what you are talking about the kingdom of heaven is all about. And Lord, I I just pray that you would uh, let your word across these six weeks Just plant it deep in us. May it challenge us. May it haunt us throughout the week. May it come back to us over and over and over again as we are thinking, as we are praying for our country. And Lord, I pray that you would um, help this preacher today. Help this preacher get out of the way. Let the windows of heaven open up and you say what you want to say. Please may it be so. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to grab that outline. Hopefully, there's a pen sitting in the chair right in front of you if you don't already have one. I'm going to get you to fill in some, uh, some of the blanks and maybe circle and underline some things as we read some scriptures. But let me begin by saying this. I grew up um, in fear, and I really didn't think about it a lot, but it was definitely there, and, and I've shared it with you a few times. But one of the fears that I grew up in, I bet, is maybe a shared fear that you had. I grew up in a period of, of our lives called the Cold War. Uh, where it was us and Russia, you know, it was us and, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union, right? It was the United States and the Soviet Union, and, and we didn't know who was going to hit the button first, but we knew that if one of us hit the button, global destruction would happen, you know, as nuclear war happened all over the planet. And I kind of grew up with this understanding and a fear of some enemy off in the distance, you know, this, this USSR. But something that hit even closer to home for me was a deep fear that I had because I remember as a young boy, um, I remember our, our, our problem with Iran. And Iran had taken some of our, of our U.S. citizens hostage. Maybe you remember that whole situation in, in Munich, and then you remember the Iran hostage crisis. And my brother, my older brother, was of, uh, was of military age. He was of the age where he could be pulled into a conflict. And I was so afraid because close to my home, he was my hero. I was so afraid that something would happen to instigate a war with Iran and my brother would be called up to service. Now, that's the way children are, right? Children, they can have big 
boogeymen in the closet, you know. They can have these people they're afraid of out there. And I imagine all of us were like that at some point. We all had our people that we were afraid of because of the Cold War or, or these issues or those issues. And some of you guys, you're a lot older than me. And so you can track back a lot further than me. And you have your own children, uh, your own childhood fears. That you were. But you know what happened with that? Well, Iran, those, that situation kind of calmed down later on, and we're still dealing with Iran. And, and the Soviet Union broke up when I was in college, and, and, and now we, you know, we're still dealing with Russia in, in many ways. But the truth of the matter is the, the Cold War, as we knew it at the time, kind of went away, you know, kind of dissolved overnight with the falling of, the, of the, uh, the, the wall, the Western Wall there in Berlin. But the truth of the matter is when I think about it today, America is in a new conflict and has a new war. And I'm not talking about the types of wars that, that we would address as, you know, something with Iraq or Afghanistan. I'm not talking about those kind of wars. We have a war within our own borders. And every one of us in this room, we know that. We know we are fighting a war internally. It's not a civil war. And right now, we don't have conflicts with guns uh, fighting state versus state or anything like that. But we know that we have been in conflict as a nation. And um, I'm reading a book right now, and I've, I told you guys about it for, I, I guess I told you about it several, several, several weeks ago. There's a book I heard about called The Politically Incorrect Jesus. I invite you to read it. It's a good book. As a matter of fact, if you're going to be coming to Wednesday nights and purposely plugged in, it might be a good book for you to order this week and get it. Because this book talks about the fact that the world Jesus came into was a world that was in a culture war as well much like the culture war that we are in right now. And so some of the thoughts that I'm going to be sharing with you kind of come and flow out of this, and some of them just kind of come and flow out of my own biblical study. But one of the things that that author talks about is that we have a cultural war that we are in, and it has a bunch of different issues where we're disagreeing and fighting about. We, we have a lot of issues going on in this cultural war. And he calls one of the, the biggest proponents of the cultural war this, this idea, this concept, this this ideology that, that is practiced around us all the time, this political correctness stuff. But what I want to kind of point to as we begin this study over the next six weeks when it comes to hope for America is that every one of us realizes that we are in a conflict in America, a lot of divisiveness, and a lot of folks are, you know, thinking we've seen our best days and other folks are wondering, have we? But the truth of the matter is we are in a culture War, And I'm going to be talking about that for the next six weeks and where we are headed as a nation in America. But here's the truth of the matter. If there is a war, there is an enemy. And that's where I want to begin. Who is our enemy? Who is the enemy that we're facing in this cultural war? Some folks would look across the aisle and they'd go, well, it's the Democrats, you know, and oh, it's the Republicans, you know, and oh, it's the conservative versus the liberal, it's this or that. You can put all the kind of labels on it, but if you got your pen, would you just start with me in kind of one central thought, and let's talk about Jesus. Number one, Jesus was very clear that his followers have only one enemy. Write that down, if you will. Jesus pointed over and over again to the enemy that we face, which is the enemy of our souls. And he was dealing with a cultural war as well, but he didn't, caught up in, didn't get caught up in all the stuff happening in the society he lived in because he was beyond that. What's interesting is about Jesus is, and you know, in Jesus' day, whether you want to call them Democrats or Republicans or whether you want to call them liberals or, or conservatives or progressives or or this or that. You know, Jesus had a whole bunch of people struggling for power in his day and age. 
He lived when a time was Caesar was trying to take over the world. He, he lived in a land that was occupied by Rome. He lived in a land where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day, were vying for power. And if they could get him over to their side, they, that would be better for them. But Jesus would not be tricked into their little pulls because he didn't see any of them as his enemy. He didn't look at Pharisees or Sadducees or Caesar or Rome. He didn't see any of them as the enemy because Jesus knew we have one enemy. And God has given him the power on this planet, the power over this realm for a time being before he comes back again. And we are waging war against one enemy. He said that, he talked about it in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus was pointing to the enemy that was there. Now, what's interesting is folks in that day, during their cultural world, they had a lot of stuff they, were, they had going on. So they were trying to, they, were, they had their own little battles over this and that. Maybe you remember that little story where one time they came to Jesus and say, Jesus, who are we supposed to pay taxes to? Who are we supposed to pay taxes to? And they wanted Jesus to pick a side, pick a side. Where are you at in this, in this ideology fight? Where are you? And Jesus looked at them and he wouldn't pick a side. He wouldn't pick a side about where their taxes were. You know, are you going to be with Caesar or are you going to be with us, the religious leaders? He wouldn't do that because Jesus was beyond that. And he, he, he was recognizing that things going on in our culture are on one level, but there's always a bigger battle going on beyond it that's driving it. It's, it's good versus evil. It's our enemy versus our Lord and his purposes. They came to Jesus and said, what do you think about divorce? What do you think about divorce? Just wanting Jesus to pick a side, but Jesus wouldn't pick a side. For Jesus, it was always something beyond just your thoughts about divorce and what you think this or that's going on. You remember Pilate? Jesus is standing before Pilate in the last days of his life, and Pilate looks at him and says, so I understand you're a king, right? You know what he's saying? He's saying, are you with Caesar? Are you going to support Caesar, or are you some kind of religious zealot? And Jesus just looked at him and wouldn't pick a side. Jesus wouldn't pick a side. Jesus was beyond that. Jesus understood that though there are divisive issues going on in any culture, and they were certainly there in his culture, that those divisive issues and the people that were on different sides, they weren't the real enemy. The enemy is the one who wants to threaten our souls and who wants to, to take our, our nation and our culture and our society down to, in that degradation, in that demeaning way, further and further away from the path of God. Jesus didn't affiliate with any party, and I'm sure it drove the Sadducees and the Pharisees crazy, but he wouldn't do it. As a matter of fact, when it was time for Jesus to choose his, his followers and his disciples, he went out and chose regular everyday people, not religious people, so that he would not identify with a party of any kind. Now, I grabbed this scripture, and I was thinking about this scripture here. Look at with me in John 12. Uh, this is kind of a, a cool moment. I'm going to put the scripture up here behind me. But I don't know if you remember this moment in John 12. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, thunder kind of rings out. But it's not just thunder. It's the voice of God. And that doesn't just, God doesn't just speak at, at Jesus' baptism out, out from heaven. And God just doesn't speak at the transfiguration moment out from heaven. Sometimes Jesus is just teaching, and God, it's almost like God says, amen, from heaven. And this moment in John chapter 12, there was a sound like thunder, and God spoke from heaven while Jesus was teaching. And then Jesus spoke right after that, and he said, well, I don't have it here, but in John 12, verse 30, he says, the reason that my father just spoke was not for me, it was for you. And then he said this, he says, 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now he's pointing to the cross. Jesus is about to go die for the sins of the world. He knows that. He's already revealed it to his disciples and they didn't even want to hear it. And what he's trying to say is, listen, there's about to be a cosmic battle between my father's plan to redeem this world and Satan's plan to condemn this world. And here's what's about to happen. My father just spoke. You heard his voice. And judgment is about to happen on this earth. But mercy is about to happen on this earth at the same time. And he says, when I am lifted up, it's a picture of literally what's going to happen. He's going to be raised up high on a cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, and I would add women, to myself. Listen, in the midst of this cultural battle, where I want to begin for this six-week journey is simply this. It's not people that we have to look at and say, well, you're my enemy because you disagree in thought with me, or you're my enemy because what you're doing or what you're believing in or what you're voting for is dialectically opposed to what I think is biblical. The issue is we have one enemy. He's driving all kinds of different issues that are going around all over the place, but we have one enemy, and I love what Jesus was saying. Listen, Christ followers, if we will lift up Jesus If we will focus on Jesus and his plan and his kingdom, he says he will draw all people to himself. In the same salvation that was being offered in the cross of Calvary, Calvary, I think is being offered today. If Christ followers will just lift up Jesus. Well, Stephen, that's a real hard thing to do. If you knew where I worked, I mean, do you know the corporate setting that I work in? Do you know that? Yes. And I'm saying that it's still the same challenge today that it was the day in Jesus's culture to lift up Jesus wherever we are. But as Christ followers, it is the clarion call. If we will lift him up, he will draw people to himself. And I believe if we, Christ followers, will lift him up, he will draw even our culture, our society, and America to himself. You got your pen? Write this down, if you will. Number two. And this is important because I think sometimes we forget this. Write this down. America has always struggled with what was right and wrong. I'm going to say that again. America has always struggled with what was right and wrong. And by the way, in your margin right there, you might want to write a little note for yourself. So has every society, every culture that's ever existed on planet Earth. So America is one of those cultures and is one of those societies. And we have always struggled with what is right and wrong. Go back to your history lessons for a minute. Think about how we were struggling with what was right and wrong even when we decided to create our own country and start a revolutionary war. And think, think back to the Civil War that really defined who we were and the issues we were facing in the Civil War, these issues of slavery. And, and let me just push you back for a minute, guys. We are not far removed from that. Right here in Henry County, right here in this very area, 150 years ago, people had slaves... They were their property in this area. And preachers like myself from pulpits here got up and preached. That was the way to go. And that was right because we could find it in the Bible. Listen, America has always struggled with what is right and what is wrong. And so has every civilization. The other night I'm with you guys. We went to Walt Woodlawn. That was a great movie, wasn't it? Thursday night we went out to the movies together. It was a great night. Many of you invited some friends and family to come with you. 
I sat there, and I want to tell you, I, I did not try to read ahead on Woodlong. I had watched the previews. I had read some reviews. I had listened to some scholars, but I did not try to. I like going to enjoy a movie just like you do, right? And so I was watching this movie, Woodlong, and I want to tell you, I did not realize that about 85% of that movie deals with race relations. I didn't even know it. I did not know the story of that Woodlawn football team. I did not know how it all came out. But I was sitting there just thinking about when I was born and how I fit into the great story of our own struggle for civil rights. When the movie was over, I was talking to some of you guys, um, and I, and I, I, I asked you guys, do you remember that? Do you remember some of the stuff happening in the, in the early 60s, mid-60s, late 60s? Do you remember some of that? And some of you guys said, yeah, I was, I remember a couple of people said, I was in middle school. We were having to be bust because a lot of that segregation stuff was going on. And then I was sitting there, Miss Jenny, I'm so glad you came to the movie with us. I, was, I looked at Miss Jenny. Miss Jenny, remind me how old you are. 92, right? 92. And I thought to myself, Miss Jenny's seen a lot of world I ain't ever seen. You know what I'm talking about? I really, I thought to myself, Miss Jenny has seen so much more than just our little conflict, not a little, our conflict with our civil rights stuff going on in the 60s. She's seen a lot more than that. She's seen the world before that. She's seen the world when we were at World War II, right? When, we, when there was uh, not just, not just a, a, the Axis powers that we were fighting against, but when we were attacked ourselves. And, and, and the horror that was going on across the world. But should we get involved? I mean, he's killing people over there. But should we get involved? Listen, guys. This is important to remember. And it was good for me on Thursday night to go to the movies and just remind myself, you know what? America has always struggled with what's right and wrong. And it's not just us. It's every culture and every society that's ever lived on planet Earth. We have all struggled. Now, what's interesting in our day and age is some of our struggle, this is crazy, right? Some of our struggle with right and wrong these days, is this right, is this wrong? We watch polls on our news, right? And we watch politicians go back and forth on, well, I believe this one three years later. No, I think this way, right? Based on polls. And, and we see this internally. We, it's right there on our TV all the time. Reminds me, by the way, of the gospel, I mean, the book of James where it says uh, that, that immature people will be tossed about you know, like by the wind and the waves. It's almost like an inner tube, right? I always picture an inner tube being tossed around the waves. They'll be tossed about left and right because they really don't know the truth. The truth of the matter is we have always struggled with what's right and wrong. And one of the things we've got to come to grips with is there is truth. There is absolute truth. The Bible points us towards the things that God is for and the things that God's against. And the world in which we live in would try to convince you with politically incorrect you know, mantra that says, oh, truth is whatever you figure it out to be. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Truth is whatever is going to serve you. The truth of the matter is, from day one on planet Earth, there was such a thing as truth, God's truth. And there is such a thing as sin, and we collectively, not only as Americans but as humans, have went the opposite way of what God's intentions were for us, and we have lived and chosen wrong paths. Sin. Sin. Today, kind of the central scripture I want to take you back to is, is Adam and Eve's struggle for right and wrong and what we can learn from it and then apply that to our American struggle between what is right and what is wrong. So what, what is truth? You know, the culture we live in, by and large, would tell you, well, there's no such thing as truth. 
There's no bullseye for what can be really truth. The whole world is gray. But what I want to tell you is that's kind of, that's kind of the lie that Adam and Eve bought into. That there was no truth. What is truth? What's right? Is it really? I'm going to make up my own truth, right? Take yourself back with me, if you will. Genesis chapter 3. And I'm not going to read the whole story because you know the story of Adam and Eve, right? You know God said, here's a tree. You can eat from everything else. Don't eat from this. And then Satan came along. Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? Satan came along and said, well, I don't know if that's really truth, you know? I don't know if God told you the truth. And Satan said, here. If you eat from this tree, then you'll possess the same wisdom and intellect and knowledge as God has. Why don't you take a bite? Pick it up with me in, in there in verse 6, chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye, that's interesting, kind of like temptation right there. She looked at it, and it must have looked really good. By the way, there's a lot of things in our culture that can look really good, but they're not God's will for us, okay? And then notice this, and that it was also desirable for gaining wisdom, right? She had bought into the lie of the enemy who said, hey, eat from this one. You'll know everything God does. She took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You know the story. But then let me just point out a couple of things here. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Truth, really quickly, just applying trying to grab the scripture and squeeze out of it for ourselves. What's interesting is before they disobeyed God, before they chose the wrong path, before sin, there was a realization that they didn't have. And that was that naked, they were fine. You know, they didn't have any issue with each other. They bite the apple, they share the apple together, and then all of a sudden a new realization happens for them. Their eyes are open and shame enters their world and they realize they're naked. It's just interesting. God doesn't show it to them. They real, a new realization happens, and that same, that, that, I guess some, someone would say, you know, they bit the apple, they become, they become uh, kind of self-absorbed, they, self-reliant, you know, I'm not going to trust God, I'm going to do it my way. They become that, they, that self-awareness leads to self-reliance, that self-reliance then leads to shame. So watch what happens here. So they realize, their eyes are open, and now they're naked. They, this is big. This is big. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Now, I want you to picture this. <laughs> They've got shame and guilt has entered their world because they know they have disobeyed God. What do they do? They go and they do the best thing they know how to do. They make makeshift coverings for themselves. They literally take fig leaves and try to figure out, I, w- I wonder what that conversation was like, right, between the man and the woman, you know, you're going to need more leaves than I need, but, you know, yeah. and, and they figure out how they're going to make their leaves, and they make their coverings, and all of a sudden, you know, now they look different, and they, they're living in this new reality, right, but watch what happens, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, key point, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? You know, when they were not willing to really accept God's bullseye as the mark, and they just chose their own way, now shame and guilt enters their world. A new realization. Their self-awareness leads to self-reliance. Their self-reliance leads to shame. And now they're hiding from God. 
you know, I was, I was, I was in graduate school at Emory University, and, it, and, and in graduate school at Emory, pretty, pretty high academia place, sometimes you'd sign up for a course, and you wouldn't even know what that course was about, but there were some phenomenal learnings and some phenomenal courses. I'll never forget one time signing up for a course called Revelation, Evil, and the Trinity. I had no idea what that course was about. I, I want to take that kind of course, right? I signed up for a course that was called Shame, Guilt, and the Rights of Reconciliation. It's interesting. As a course, we began students with the professor studying the, the component of shame and guilt in the context of a society. And what I realized was that in our society that we live in today, very different from society, just our society and our culture, just a little ways back, we are doing everything we can to get rid of shame and guilt. We don't think people should grow up in shame. We don't think people should grow up feeling guilty for anything. Man, I hope mamas and daddies don't do that to their children. Did you feel shamed as a child? Did you feel like you were guilty for this or that behavior? And one of the things that we studied was globally, not American, globally, cultures throughout the history of time has, have used this thing that God put inside of us called guilt and shame as a way of showing what was the right way, showing the way we live in our culture, in, the, in our group, in our clan, in our family. And if you behave differently that, oftentimes we studied whole civilizations who would put you out. They would put you out. They would send you outside of the family, outside of the clan, outside of the society to say, no, we don't behave that way. If you did something wrong, if you murdered somebody, if you stole from somebody, they'd put you out of the family. If you had to live outside that family, you would be shamed and guilted into that for a period. And all of a sudden, it made me think to myself, man, you know what? I remember growing up as a child, and listen, okay, I stole something, all right? Can I go ahead and confess that I'm your pastor? I, I remember as a little boy, I was hungry one time, and we were visiting my granddaddy, and my mom and daddy, he was poor. He didn't have nearly what we had. And my mom, he offered me something to eat. And my mom and daddy said I couldn't eat it. And I was so hungry. I was like, you know, in the Bible, must, I, was, I was doing anything. And, and I stole some Fig Newtons, a little pack of Fig Newtons. And I hid them underneath the seat of my mama's car, underneath the front seat. And on the way back home, it was an hour-long drive back to my house. They lived way out in the country. On that way long back, on that drive, I said, Mom and Daddy, I'm going to go on to sleep. They said, go ahead. I got back there in the back. I was so hungry. I reached under that seat. I started opening up my little package. Oh, don't make any noise. You know, don't make any noise. Oh, you know, I was a fool's fool, wasn't I? You know good and well. When they finally heard that little crack of that wrapper, oh, I'll never forget my mama saying, What's that noise? Oh, Jesus could have come back right then. That would have been just fine. Oh, well, the news came out. The story came out. Stephen had stolen the fig, fig Newtons and boarded my daddy. Isn't it amazing how they could drive a car and put a whipping on you behind them? <laughs> Woo! He put a whipping on. He pulled that belt off, and he was beating me from the back. Woo, and it was a good whipping. I deserved every bit of it. You know what? I owned that. I was deeply, to this day, it is hard for me to tell you, that I stole Fig Newtons from my poor grandfather. Now, my poor granddaddy wouldn't have cared. He'd love me to have those things. He offered them to me, as a matter of fact. But shame and guilt 
was a very good thing for me as a little boy. It taught me who I was called to be and who we are in this family and what we don't do. And see, I sat in this class at Emory University, and we talked about how in our society we're doing everything we can to rid our culture of guilt and shame. When the truth of the matter is, it's part of the way God designed people, and not just like families, but whole societies and whole cultures. But isn't it a shame that that little saying, you remember that little saying, you ought to be ashamed. You ever heard that? Anybody ever had that say? You ought to be ashamed. My grandma used to say that to me. If I said something wrong, she'd say, you ought to be ashamed. We don't hardly hear that in our culture anymore. It's like we're trying to get rid of shame. But let's go back to Adam and Eve's story, right? When they decided that God's bullseye for what truth really was, they just could make up their own rules, and they bit the apple Immediately inside their world, shame and guilt was there because shame and guilt is a very good thing. It's a very natural thing when we do that which is wrong. And so what did they do? They hid from God. Let me just run a real quick rabbit trail today. Sometimes I look at our culture and I watch TV just like you do. I watch, I don't watch a lot of them, but I see commercials or, or, or plugs and even in magazines and, and I think about these reality TV shows, you know. I think about what's going on with Bruce Jenner. I, I won't call him anything else but Bruce because he was my hero when I was a little boy. Man, he was, he was a champion when I was a little boy. And I look at Bruce Jenner, and I see all that stuff happening, and, and I got to tell you, that class, that little class that was offered me at, at Emory University, shame, guilt, listen, I didn't even tell you this part, and the rights of reconciliation. You, you are shamed out of our culture. You are guilted out of our culture so that you can be brought back in and reconciled and brought back into the culture we live in. That's the, that's the purposefulness. And God has a plan. Adam and Eve are shamed and they're guilted. They're, they're put out, but God makes a way. I look at some people in our culture and I think to myself, Bruce Jenner, I think, where is their shame? Where is their shame? Are they just doing it to make a dollar? Is that what all these reality shows are? Where is the shame in our American culture? And where are the people who will call out the shame and say, no, that's not the way you act. That's not the right thing. Where are we in that relation, in, in that place? Shame and guilt has its place in our culture as part of God's, God's very design. And I think about marriage. I mean, the very activist judges who decided we're going to decide something else is marriage, not the biblical notion of marriage, not the societal and cultural notion that we've known for centuries and millennia. We are smart enough, we're just going to redefine it. I think to myself, where is the shame? Where is the guilt in that? That you would say, oh, I'm just going to, me, I'm going to say what truth is. I'm going to draw my own bullseye. I'm not going to trust anything. Where is that? By the way, in our culture, we didn't just start redefining marriage in 2015. We have been redefining marriage for a very long time. Go back to the 60s. Go back to the 60s when we were just doing anything we wanted to do, you know? And, and by the way, have you ever noticed that in order to, to make sure that we're not shaming or guilting ourselves, oftentimes we redefine terms in order to say this, not, this is not wrong, this is right? Uh, for example... What we used to call sexual immorality in the 60s, what did we start calling it, right? Forever, certain acts had been done, and we called those acts sexual immorality. 
But in the 60s, we, we redefine them. We're going to call this the sexual revolution. We're not going to call it the sexual immorality anymore. Now, this is the revolution. We are evolving to something higher. And what's, what's ridiculous is how we think the changing of the term changes the bullseye. The changing of the term means, oh, I'm going to redefine truth for whoever I am. This happens over and over again, guys. Open up your ears to it. I started thinking about it this past week. How many times people change terms in order to validate what they want to validate as truth? Instead of calling it an adultery, we'll call it an affair. Have you had an affair? We'll call it something different. Let's don't call it adultery. Instead of a baby, we will call it what? What do you call it? You know what you call it. We'll call it a fetus. We won't call it a baby. We'll call it a fetus. And all of a sudden, how in the world has this become part of our American vernacular? How in the world? Instead of calling it um, an abortion, we will call it a woman's right to choose. That's what we'll call it, right? And that's what, So we'll redefine the terms, and we won't call it that anymore. And what's amazing is over and over again, we live in a culture, guys, that is doing everything it can to desperately distance itself from shame and guilt and trying to change our terms around to say there is no truth. Truth is whatever you make it to be. I, I was thinking just about how this works, but here, let's roll back to this. When Adam and Eve felt shame and guilt, what did they do? They, they made a covering for themselves that really would not work, would not last, number one. Number two, they heard God moving through the garden, and the Bible says they hid from God. Now, I don't, I'm not going to read all the story in between of the God conversation, but you, suffice it to say, you cannot hide from God, right? Even if God asks the question, where are you? God knows where you're at. And then God has a conversation with them about why they did what they did and why they're feeling the way they are. But I want to just make sure that you get the heart of God because there's a scripture here that you might have just passed over so many times. I, I can tell you, I read the Bible a lot of times and I did. But notice what happens. After the God conversation, God does something for them. In Genesis 3, uh, verse 21, the Bible says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. This was in the Bible, in, in, in all that we have as far as our existence, this was the very first blood offering. The very first blood covenant sacrifice happened with Adam and Eve. God looked at their fig leaves, and I don't, in my Bible, it never says that leaves forgive sin. It never says leaves cover over and atone for wrongdoing. In my Bible, it only says there's one thing that can cover over our sin, our error, our wrongdoing, and, and cover over our shame and our guilt, and it's blood. This is how God set up the world, only blood. And so forever in the Old Testament, they would, they would follow this model, but God is the first one who does it. Get that picture, because you might have missed it. The very one who created the birds and the alligators and the hippopotamuses, the very one who, who made all of these living things, he now has two of his children, Adam and Eve, who've done wrong and are in shame. And what does he do? He takes two of the very things he's created, and he kills them with a blood offering, and he takes their skins, and he makes a covering for them. You know, for a long time, I missed that. I'm like, how did I miss that? But I want you to get the heart of God. So many people live their life thinking that God is some kind of mean ogre, and he's just a 
mean judge and he's wanting to punish people. I hope you see the heart of God. There will be justice. There will be consequence for our wrongdoing. They will be expelled from the garden. They will now not have life and not have to worry about death, not have to worry about disease. There will be toil that they have to. But listen, what is God after? He wants to cover over their wrongdoing. Even from the earliest pages of our Bible, he covers over their wrongdoing with a blood sacrifice and he covers them. He gives them garments of clothing. They were hiding. They were hiding because of their shame and their guilt. They were hiding. But what we can look back to is we can understand, you know what? They quit hiding. They came out and they said, God, here's where we are. And God forgave them and he reconciled them. Let me just go back to our American culture for a minute. One of the things I sometimes ask myself is, why why are we continuing to, to push shame and guilt away? Why are we not calling things right and wrong? And why, here's this, why sometimes we even celebrate the very things in our culture that should be shamed, right? See, Adam and Eve, in their shame, they were, they were repentant. They were sorry for what they had done. But in our culture, there are people, it seems like we're celebrating shameful, lewd, terrible behavior. We celebrate violence all the time. We have got to come full circle, to come full circle back to this model found in Genesis and, and, and say, you know what? There is wrongdoing, and we have done it as a culture, as a society. We have done it. And here's what happens. Here's the way it works. If Adam and Eve would have rejected God's offering of killing the animals and giving them the skin, then they would have rejected His grace. If they would have rejected His offering for them, they would have stayed in their shame. They would have lived in their guilt. There would have been no offering for them And I think they would have continued to live in that kind of state far away from God. Write this one down, if you will. Last big point I want to make today, and that's this, that America right now in our culture, this cultural war we're in, America is paying the price for hiding from God. We're paying the price for our own sin. But the question is, will America come out of its hiding and say, you know what, we've done wrong, we've done wrong here, here, and here, and God, we want to we confess what we've done is wrong. We want to come out of our hiding. I've been preparing this message series for weeks. And can I, this may be, uh, sometimes I sense that God wants me to share something. I don't even know why he wants me to share it, okay? I've been preparing this message series for weeks, for weeks. I've been writing notes. I've been putting scriptures down. All, all six weeks, been reading, 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 studying, studying. I'm going to address this here. And then all of a sudden, in the last 24 hours, I'm driving down the road, heading to a wedding that I'm going to do in Savannah. And God brings a scripture to mind, mind over and over again, over and over again. Like, okay, God, I don't know whether he's telling it to me or he's telling me to, to tell it to you. And it's a, very, it's a scripture. I know it's a scripture, but I don't even know where it's found. Those that sow the wind reap the whirlwind. I'm driving down the road. Those that sow the wind reap the whirlwind. Those that sow the wind reap the whirlwind. I'm laying in my bed last night, and God wakes me up, and these words rolling through my mind. Those that sow the wind reap the whirlwind. So this morning, I got up early, and I went to my Bible, and I said, God, show me where this is at, you know, Hosea. Hosea, prophet, (laughs) the prophet, Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. 
chapter 8, and I began to read in chapter 8. And I don't have it in your outline. You're welcome to look it up in your Bible. But I just want to put some words up here for the Old Testament prophet who is speaking to the nation of Israel. Listen, who had turned his back on God, who had wandered so far away from God. They had built idols. They had built temples. They had put kings and princes in place that were not even honoring God. Their, their nation was in shambles. Their faith was in shambles. And Hosea, the prophet of God, in chapter 8, listen to these words. I think they're words for us, guys. Hosea stood out in front of the people and he said, I'm going to read it. Instead of reading the screen, I'm going to read my Bible. He said these words. Put the trumpet to your lips. By the way, the trumpet is the sounding call, is the alarm. Your lips, he's talking to Hosea. He's telling the prophet, put the sounding call to your lips, Hosea. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. Not a dove. Not a dove, okay? An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Verse 2, Israel cries out to me, O God, O our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good, and an enemy will pursue him. Listen to, this is God's problem with Israel. Verse 4, they set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. There were ten kings that Israel had chosen. Many of them had taken the throne by force. And every one, I'm sorry, seven of the last ten kings that Israel had, seven of the last ten kings had, had built altars and idols and golden calves all over the land of Israel and led them away from God. One more time, verse 4. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. And with their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Then verse 5, hear his words. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long, how long will they be incapable of purity? They cannot save you is what he's saying. They are from Israel. You made them, not me. You, they're from your hands. They're, they're just gold. They're silver. Verse 6. This calf, a craftsman has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. Verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners will swallow it up. What he's saying is, for a period of time, you've acted like it really didn't matter what I thought, and you've sown the wind. And the way I deal with things is I've put my laws in place Whatever you sow, you will reap in more abundance. You have sown the wind. You are reaping the whirlwind. And you may think you can be fruitful without me. The head, the stalk of grain, it, 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 has, it cannot produce. He's saying you cannot produce without me. And listen, guys, I think God is saying to us as Americans, and I think he's saying to our country, you want to be the light on the shining hill that Reagan talked about? You want to be the country that that is a global power for good on the planet where everybody looks at you and says, look, that's a Judeo-Christian nation. You've fallen so far away. You've fallen so far away. Sound the trumpet 
An eagle is over the house of the Lord. You've walked so far away from me. And Hosea was calling them back to God. Why, why, why would God continue to say to me, sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind? Except to go back to an Old Testament prophet who maybe, just maybe, speaking to, the, to his nation of Israel today, would be speaking to the church in America today, to speak to the nation of America today. Jesus was not, he did not mince words. Jesus did not say, truth is what you want it to be. He did not say, well, you know, you just draw your own bullseye. You figure it out. You know what Jesus said? He made truth something more than just something you would know. He personified it. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In America, simply put, you're in church today. You know this. America's got to turn back to the truth of God. We've got to turn back to Jesus and let him come and heal our land. And we have got to come out of hiding and say, you know what? The things we have done as a country are shameful. And we're guilty of them. We're guilty of them. Would you come and heal us? Would you come and forgive us? We know there's judgment. But we know that you're a God of mercy too. You know, the question of this series that I'll ask you every week simply is this. Is there hope for America? Is there hope for America? <laughs> Why? Of course there is. Was there hope for them in the garden that day? They probably felt like, probably not. He's going to be so mad with us while they were in their hiding. But there was hope, and he was walking in the garden that day. And you know... <laughs> I sat there at Woodlawn the other night. What a, what a dark moment in our country. Our days of fighting against segregation and the, and the like. What a dark moment. But was there hope? Yes, there was hope. And we've seen darker days in this country. The Civil War to speak of. We've seen some dark days. Is there hope? Guys, as long as God's in the house, there's hope. There's hope. But we got to quit hiding, right? We got to come out. And we got to say, these things are not pleasing to our God. Like Hosea said to the people that day. You know, today I put some bullet points at the very bottom of your outline. And they're just kind of an invitation towards prayer this morning. And I'm going to open up the altar. And I'm going to invite you to come and pray for our nation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to pray kind of along that line of Genesis chapter 3. Come, God, visit us. We need you to walk from sea, the shining sea. Come, God, visit us. Like you walked in the garden, would you come here and visit the United States of America? Would you walk here so we can sense your presence? The second prayer, God, would you call us out of our hiding? Guys, we desperately need that in our country. And then that third prayer, would you cover over our sin and our shame no matter what the cost is to us? I don't know how you would pray that. I just felt led to maybe guide you towards that. You pray it in your way, and maybe the person kneeling right next to you, they'll pray it in their way. And maybe God would hear his people cry out, God, we need you. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. We've heard your heart. Forgive us, God, for the things we are ashamed and guilty of. Guys, our altar is open. Let's pray for our country together. Would you come forward? Just come on in.
on bended knee if you're comfortable or if you need to stand because you can't bend a knee, let's come on and let's just, let's just cry out to God. I'm going to allow just the music to play for a few minutes and allow you to have your conversations with God and then I'm going to lead us in prayer for our nation this morning. But you just in your own way, talk to God. Cry out to God for our country. stay right where you're at there and let's just pray together in unity. I just want to lead you through some, some thoughts and some prayers together. God, we pray for these elections that are going to be coming up in the next year. We, we, need, we need a president that you would put in place for us, oh God, that would have a heart after you. Lord, I think about some, some of the men of God who have led our nation before with boldness and, and prayed over our nation and turn the hearts of the people to you and Lord we pray that you would give us a president who would turn the hearts of the people back to you we need a president who is a God fearer who, who really sees what's going on in our country and, and is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and is not ashamed to pray over our nation and call us back to you so Lord we pray for our future president and Lord we pray uh, for Hollywood and, and the way the church would speak to Hollywood. Lord, we, we need to have a voice to Hollywood. Lord, we need to have a voice to the culture of our society that calls deeds done in darkness that they are deeds done in darkness and they are not light. And let light expose the darkness, Lord. And we pray that you'd give a voice to the church. You'd give a voice to the prophets and to the pastors across our nation. And Lord, we pray for our, our men and women who are fighting for good all across and beyond our borders. We pray that you would protect them, O oh God, and we pray that they would fight for truth and justice and fight for who you are, God. And Lord, I, I, I pray, Lord, for people who are, who, are, who are living in a way that doesn't please you, whether that's in, in, in with their behaviors or their addictions or their lifestyle. I pray, God, you turn their hearts back to you, that you turn their hearts back to you and you'd call us from wayward living, God, to live lives of holiness. Lord, what we need in America is lives of people who are living holy unto you, holy for you, God. We want to be a country that is one nation under God, and that God is Jehovah, God, the Yahweh. We believe in Jesus Christ, Lord, and we want you to turn the hearts of our nation back to not just having it on our coins, but Lord, may it make just sweeping revival across our nation that, Lord, we would be a country that is under your leadership, under your guidance, following your way. And Lord, we are of the, of, of the people who believe it can still happen. 
We have faith that, Lord, you can turn us around. You've done it time and time and time again with culture after culture, even your own people. And, Lord, sometimes it meant that you had to send them through some rough trials and some rough places. Lord, our prayer simply is this. Call us out. Call us out of our place of hiding. Let us be confronted by a holy God and call us to a place of repentance. Call us to a place of forgiveness, of of washing away the shame and the guilt and setting our feet on good ground again and being back in relationship with you. We need it desperately, God. We hunger for it. And Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that our church would be a church that, that prays daily, not just driving down the road little arrow prayers, but gets on our knees before you, God, and holds our country before you. And we pray, Lord, for the salvation of our country, not just for our children and for our grandchildren, but, Lord, so that our country would be a beacon of light to the world and that we would lift up high Jesus. And, Lord, I just pray, I just pray, God, that your feet, that your travels, that you're walking quietly through our country right now and that we would hear your gentle footsteps and we'd be called out of our place of hiding. Only you can do this, God. Lord, may the revival start in us. Give us faith to believe. Give us hope and assurance that you will bring us back. This is our prayer, Lord. Let the work be done because it's your will and it's your glory. This is our prayer. We pray this in agreement. Glory be to God.